Peter Kolchinsky arguably is the single most influential investor in biotech. Peter is co-founder of RA Capital, which has over $7 billion under management. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. In part one of my two-part interview with Peter, we'll talk about his book, The Great American Drug Deal, A New Prescription for Innovative and Affordable Medicines. Peter Kolchinsky, The Great American Drug Deal, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Peter Kolchinsky, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you here. Your book is called The Great American Drug Deal, A New Prescription for Innovative and Affordable Medicines. I have to say, um, I've read a lot of business books. I've read a lot of science books, and I've read a lot of science and business books. A lot of science and business books aren't very good in pharma. Yours is fantastic. Can you tell me something about what you mean by the great American drug deal? Yeah, well, thank you very much for the compliment. I've been in the drug industry now for my whole career. I'm a scientist by training. I became an investor, but that never made me any less of a scientist at heart. And I've been fortunate that my job allows me to think all day long with brilliant colleagues about how can we solve diseases? How can we help other people that have great ideas on how to solve diseases pursue their vision? knowing that when we're successful, we are permanently changing human health for the better. There will always be that medicine and patients will never be worse off than with this medicine. And maybe there'll be even more innovation and maybe we'll someday cure diabetes and make cancer something people only worry about when they're 80 or 90 years old. I'm not suggesting we solve immortality here, but we can give humanity decades more of good health. And it's a jewel among America's industries that this biomedical ecosystem, all these biotech companies and pharmas. And when you're proud of the work that your community is doing, you hope that your country is proud of what it's nurtured in the biomedical industry. And I hoped with the book to inspire many Americans to be proud of this industry and at the same time, acknowledge that it is outrageous when patients can't afford medicines and we can diagnose the root of that problem. The root of that problem is, for the most part, insurance design. If we can fix insurance so that it has low out-of-pocket costs so patients can afford the medicines they need, and if we can also make sure that all drugs ultimately go generic so that the drug industry only thrives and, and collects revenues from its new drugs and doesn't get the sort of easy street of milking old products, that is a great American deal. It's the great American drug deal. That's the bargain. It's basically another way of describing what I call the biotech social contract. Yeah, explain that. So biotech social contract, I don't think most people, when they think about biotech or pharma, think about a social contract, something that society is making a deal with other parts of society and both sides are better off. What is that contract? And what is the Great American Drug Deal? The Great American Drug Deal, or the biotech social contract, is basically an unwritten, at least until my book came around, and now I would argue it's written, an unwritten agreement where what the drug industry is going to do for the world is to invent new medicines that will go generic without undue delay, much like builders will build people homes that they will then be able to pay off the mortgage on and own. In that way, the stock of America's generic drugs, you know, these remarkable public goods that are keeping us out of hospitals inexpensively will keep growing as the industry invents new drugs and they go generic. And that's just such a great deal. There's so much value for America and really for the whole world from the fact that drugs go generic and keep on working. The other side of that contract is 
that society will allow patients to afford their appropriate care, their appropriate treatments that they need through proper insurance, which means low out-of-pocket costs. The biotech social contract has been kind of unraveling over the last 10 years or so. Insurance increasingly is being designed in ways that while you think you're insured, people are discovering that when they get sick, all of a sudden they've got out-of-pocket costs for treatments and not just drugs, but surgery or what have you, that they can't afford. When you can't afford appropriate treatment, it means you were never really insured. That's one side of the contract that's unraveling and people have been really angry at the idea that they have cancer or diabetes and they can't afford the medicine they need. And they've put a lot of that blame on the drug industry and said, well, I can't afford this because you charge too much for your drugs. But the reality is that people can't even afford a lot of generic drugs because their insurance plans charge them huge out-of-pocket costs. People can't afford surgery. They can't afford doctor visits because insurance tries to make those things feel unaffordable. Essentially, insurance is supposed to make appropriate care affordable and accessible to people, and it's not. That's a violation of what insurance is supposed to do. I would argue what people are buying today is not even insurance. It it just masquerades as insurance. And over the last 10 years, we've seen that some drugs are not going generic, which means that they are essentially taxing America. They're extracting rent from America as a whole. Now, if insurance functioned perfectly and had low out-of-pocket costs, then all patients would be able to afford all the treatments that their doctors prescribe them, and they might not care about price of any one drug. That would mean that the high prices of old drugs are really just rent that is being extracted out of America as a whole. So we should still fix that. We should still make sure that America as a whole is not abused by companies that will take an old drug and price jacket, or even by very innovative drugs, gene therapies that are uncopyable. And therefore, even after their patents expire, they remain monopolies. You would want to make sure that ultimately America as a whole gets value for what it pays for branded drugs by ensuring that they go generic, eventually becoming expensive, essentially allowing America to be proud of having paid off the mortgage on a medicine, therefore owning it as a public good. So my book proposes fixing the two things that have been unwinding over the last 10 years and reaffirming the biotech social contract. Knowing that the insurance companies are going to be resistant to any change (laughs) or changes that might undermine their profit, I like to focus on what we can do. Most of those that listen to the podcast are members of the pharma industry. What is it that pharma is doing wrong, essentially not keeping up that end of the social contract? What can we do to strengthen it? I would say that You'll always find people that are resistant to changing the status quo to the extent that they feel like their jobs depend on the status quo. But change happens all the time. Sometimes it's pretty clear that a given business practice is just wrong. And thankfully, more and more Americans and lawmakers are aware of the fact that American insurance just isn't insurance anymore. They recognize that some things are just wrong. If firefighters rolled up to a burning house and the first thing they did was demand an out-of-pocket cost from the family before they put out the house, I think we'd all know that that's pretty wrong. It's pretty outrageous, right? Well, that's not how we insure against our homes burning down. We pay taxes to the town. The town runs a fire department and whosoever home is on fire knows that they will get the services of the fire department. In America, We've just simply chosen to design insurance plans such that for most people, they work. If you've got a job, you've got enough income, you can afford your out-of-pocket costs, then 
yeah, ultimately you're insured. But those people who just don't have enough income to afford the out-of-pocket costs, they're not insured. And essentially, it's like the fire department stands outside on the sidewalk and just lets their home burn because they can't pay the out-of-pocket to let the firefighters do their job. It doesn't have to be that way. Insurance companies used to discriminate against patients based on their pre-existing conditions. If you had to switch insurance and you already had diabetes, an insurance plan would just say, well, we're not going to cover your diabetes. It's like, well, what's the point of insurance if you're not going to cover my diabetes? Like, I can't just make it go away. And Congress said, yeah, that's just wrong. And they just outlawed it. They said insurance has to cover people regardless of their pre-existing conditions. And everybody adapted. What insurance plans want is for all other insurance plans to be treated the same. They all want to compete on the level playing field. And so if you said, all right, you can all design insurance plans, but you have to have a maximum out-of-pocket cap of $500 a year, you could do that. They would adjust their plans and they would adjust their premiums and they would adjust other utilization management tools like using prior authorizations in ways to ultimately preserve their budgets. Just like a fire department can manage its budget, whether it collects all of its revenues from the town or 90% of its revenue from the town and 10% from out-of-pocket costs. The drug industry also is going to have to adjust a bit. You've got tons of companies that haven't even launched their first drug yet that would happily trade the possibility of milking that drug in its 16th or 17th or 18th year on the market if they knew that in exchange for guaranteeing that their drug would go generic, that society would actually make their drug affordable to patients during its branded period. We call all such entrepreneurs builders. Builders are happy to be paid with a finite mortgage screen. I'll build you a home. You pay me off with a 15-year mortgage. That's a fair deal. And you will own that house and it will be inexpensive for you for the rest of your lives. And you can pass it on to your kids and your grandkids. That's the joy of home ownership. The trouble is that there are some companies that now have been marketing drugs for such a long time that they have some drugs that are past their natural mortgage period. They're 18 years on the market, 20 years on the market, sometimes longer, and they haven't dropped in price because they're uncopyable or lend themselves to patent gaming. There's some complexity to them. And so they're kind of like former builders who discover that they can sell you a house that you think you're going to pay the mortgage off on over 15 years. But then there's certain complexities to the mortgage contract. And they can call you up in year 15 and be like, I know you think you're about to make the last payment, but you see there's this clause here. You owe me three more years. And then after that, they say, oh, well, you know, actually there's another clause and you owe me four more years. And all of a sudden, they don't have to build as much anymore. They just have a whole team of lawyers and accountants that find ways to enforce your mortgage agreement against you and get you to keep paying more. Well, at some point, it stops being a mortgage and it turns into rent, doesn't it? What I would like to see happen is for all of us who are builders in this industry, all of us who prize innovation and inventing new drugs and would be happy to merely be rewarded with a finite mortgage to make it quite clear that we are prepared to sacrifice the rent extraction model that seems to have arisen around a lot of more complex drugs and that we're happy to sacrifice that landlord business model in exchange for winning insurance reform for patients. Not all drug companies are going to be happy with that. But the thing is, even people within those drug companies that would stand to lose their lucrative rent streams, even they will acknowledge that it's not quite right. 
that they should get to keep collecting huge revenues and high profits off of old drugs. They get that. That wasn't the intent of the Hatch-Waxman law that was passed in 1984 with tremendous support from both sides of the aisle that brought about the modern generic drug era that made it clear that what society pays for branded drugs will be a finite mortgage and then they'll go generic. We've operated under that regime for a long time. And we've hustled to invent new drugs to replace lost revenue as old drugs get long in the tooth and go off patent. That hustle, that creativity, the need to like invent, 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 it's a really advanced human health. And everybody in the industry has seen that. And so the idea that somehow, oh no, we must preserve these long rent streams on old drugs, you just can't say that's true because it hasn't been true for decades and it needn't be true going forward. So they'll try to preserve those rent streams if they can, because money's money. But I don't think that they're going to have any kind of righteous position or any real argument for why what they're doing is proper. So I think they'll lose. I think that you sometimes advocate for generic day, a generic holiday, where we celebrate that as a country. That's right. We took that idea from seeing how books that were going off copyright and entering the public domain, where now people could download them freely for the rest of all time, how they were celebrated. Books like that, you know, like Pride and Prejudice, written by Jane Austen, you read them in school and they're inexpensive books. There's a competitive market there for them. Lots of printers will make them. And so they're basically generic books. What you pay for them is just their cost of production with a little bit of profit. And if you download them, you can download them for free. You don't take for granted that those books just always have been there and always will be there. You still see Jane Austen's name on the cover of Pride and Prejudice, and you know that someone once wrote that book. In fact, in school, we study Jane Austen's times, the historical era that she lived in, and you try to understand why she would have written that book the way that she did. But with drugs, when they go generic, a drug like lisinopril, which I wrote about in my book, it's the most commonly prescribed generic drug in America. It lowers blood pressure. And there's millions of Americans that have it in their medicine cabinet. Nowhere does it have the name of the company that invented it or mention that there were people that worked on it. It's just there. But if you were to ascribe authorship to it, you would say Merck. That drug was once developed and launched by Merck. And now it's just made by a bunch of companies that make copies of it well enough. And nobody ever thinks about how that drug got invented. But the reality is every drug that we have, every generic drug we have, just like every off-copyright free book that you can download out there was once written by someone. And that took work and that needed to be rewarded and incentivized. Our parents paid off some of those drugs. Our parents paid off lisinopril so that we could have it essentially as a public good. Just like our parents might have paid off the mortgage on a home that they pass on to us, or we're paying off the mortgage on a home that we might pass on to our kids. That's how Americans should think about spending on branded drugs. We are all paying off a mortgage so that we can enjoy those medicines eventually as inexpensive generics, as public goods that will leave our kids better off and allow them to enjoy better health for very little money. And it saves a tremendous amount of money. America saves, I think I've seen statistics anywhere from two to $300 billion a year from the fact that drugs have gone off patent and are now available as inexpensive generics. If drugs didn't go generic, we'd be truly spending a lot on branded drugs, about probably two times as much as we do now. And if all the drugs that we have today, by the way, if by law someone declared we invalidate all patents and all drugs must be priced at close to their cost of production as essentially generics. 
America would instantaneously save, I would estimate, about $240 billion a year. And that may seem like a lot. It's about 6% of what we spend on all of healthcare. It's about 1.2% of GDP. And so that would feel like all of a sudden tremendous savings, except what will happen is immediately you would have absolutely no new drug development. Right? There's no incentives anymore. America's not paying anything for branded drugs. There's no reason why anybody should risk billions of dollars inventing a new drug. And so all R&D would stop. This industry would disintegrate. America's jewel would disintegrate. And what would happen is that diseases that we could have averted, diseases that are going to cost us a fortune in hospital expenses, will continue to cost us that fortune hospital expenses. There'll be absolutely nothing to avert those rising costs. I opened my book up with the idea of hip replacement surgery. America spends ballpark $16 billion a year, paying about $40,000 per surgery for about 400,000 surgeries a year. You're looking at $16 billion a year and rising. Healthcare services, surgery, they're rooted in land and labor. And so those are only going up. And so we're going to go from $16 billion a year to 20, 25, 30, 40 billion per year over the coming decades. And there's nothing short of a medicine that would strengthen your bones and protect your joints that would ever avert the need for hip replacement surgeries. We will be spending trillions of dollars over the next century on hip replacement surgery. Unless, of course, we invent a drug that does exactly what I say, strengthen your bones and joints, and suddenly drops the rate of hip replacement surgery. That drug, if it were as expensive as the most expensive drug that's ever been, it would end up costing us maybe $150 or $200 billion over its branded life. And people would say, oh my God, I can't believe how expensive it is. And yet it would be an incredible bargain if it averted hip replacement surgery costs, even half of those costs. And we're seeing it play out now. Look at COVID. Look at the trillions in damage it has caused to the world and to America. If you could have spent a trillion dollars on day one, the moment the pandemic hit, to magically have all the drugs and vaccines you needed to avert this catastrophe, it would have been a bargain. It would have been money well spent, a trillion dollars. Well, unfortunately, we never had that option. You couldn't possibly have blown a trillion dollars and gotten uh, vaccines and drugs any faster than we did. But in the end, all those medicines and vaccines that will end this pandemic and avert trillions more of destruction, they're not going to cost anywhere near that. They're going to cost maybe tens of billions of dollars. This pandemic is basically a little microcosm of all of healthcare. What you end up seeing is that all this innovation that allows us to not worry about a disease it ends up being an incredibly cost-effective solution to a big problem. The numbers themselves seem big, $50 a dose, $500 million to buy 10 million doses. These numbers may seem really big, and yet the reality is that they're small compared to the magnitude of the problem that they fix. That works for COVID, that works for breast cancer. What would it be worth to humanity to not have to think about breast cancer, for you to be able to look at your daughter when she's born and say, she will never die from breast cancer. That's within our power. We can innovate to the point where we can retire breast cancer. I can see the pace of innovation. I know that that's possible. What's that worth? And the thing is, people are so preoccupied with the cost of any one particular drug that they fail to understand how cost-effective drugs are in overall big picture. And the reason people care so much about how much drugs cost is because insurance make sure that they feel the expense of 
that drug, like a fire department charging you an out-of-pocket. And yet what patients really care about is what these drugs cost them. That has everything to do with insurance design. It's not the price of the drug itself and whether it's worth it. I hope that we can remain inspired by what innovation can do for mankind, that it can give us decades more of health that we can take for granted while enjoying life. And that preserving that hustle that exists in this incredibly creative scientific industry to keep inventing new stuff by offering up finite rewards for their new drugs and then retiring those rewards, having those drugs go generic and force everybody to invent something new in order to ultimately keep their companies going. That's one of the most powerful engines of human progress on the planet. And America's lucky that it's based here to a large extent. Thank you so much for joining us on the Cineo South podcast. Thank you. Next time, I continue our conversation with Peter. We talk about investing, the big picture, and giving back to society. I hope you'll join us. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cineos Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cineos Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.